Welcome to the Life and Times of Video Games, a documentary audio series about the ideas that changed video games and the people and stories behind those ideas. My name is Richard Moss, and this is episode 33 Moby Games, the one database to rule them all. Or if you like, the IMDb of video games. We'll get going in just a moment. It's not an exaggeration to say that for a lot of games journalists, Moby Games has directly shaped their work and careers. Yeah, it would be a supreme understatement to say that it would be difficult to do my job if it weren't for the site's existence over the years. If there's a new person trying to get in the company um, to get interviewed, I always look them up on Moby to see if they are real, like if, if they exist. It's like, what have you done? Because that's the definitive location of people's work in the video game is gone. In the immortal words of one Ferris Bueller, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. Of course, for Ferris, that was his justification to pretend to be sick so he could take a day off school and have the greatest time ever out with his friends. But for people who follow the games industry, this statement could well double as a rallying cry. The industry moves at a breakneck pace. Even today, in the era of games as a service and never-ending streams of updates, new games often have just a tiny window, a few weeks or maybe a couple of months, in which to make an impression on the world before they're forgotten. And old games that have fallen out of distribution, well, they might as well have never existed at all. But if you're listening to this show, then you already know there's value in this history. Whether it's recent or old or so far back that barely anybody remembers it. And it's thanks to the tireless efforts of hobbyist archivists and preservationists and collectors the world over that we can tap into that value. And it's thanks to websites like Moby Games, and not just like Moby Games, but to a large extent, specifically Moby Games the de facto source for credits and general information about video games. It's thanks to them that we have that value, that data, that information, catalogued, searchable, browsable, cross-referenced, and otherwise linked together in a way that encourages us to make connections between different games, people, companies, genres, ideas, and so on. So that we can then actually get a sense of the scale and depth of the history or of the credits of developers at a glance. But it wasn't always this way. The game's history online in 1996 was a loose collection of GeoCities websites dedicated to a very specific company or brand or game. This is Jim Leonard. He co-founded Moby Games and co-ran it until 2010 when they sold the site to the game rental service Gamefly. And I really think he was the heart and soul of the site for most of that period. And so, there, I mean, the only way to find, honestly, the only way to find information on gaming history was to get very lucky in, like, say, Yahoo. You know, Yahoo was... Uh, less of a search engine and much more of like a, a, a curated portal. And so you would, you'd, on Yahoo at that time, you'd be searching for a topic and then it would take you to all of the links that were part of that topic. And 
nothing was centralized, and the, I mean, it was you'd be lucky if you found somebody covering something. Occasionally, you could search Usenet for personal accounts, but for the most part, there was nothing centralized. Now, if we wind back the clock to a decade earlier, to when he was a teenager, Jim was deep in the PC demo scene. He was a programmer, a hacker in the old form of the word, where it meant an enthusiast who liked to push computers to their limits, to push the technology to do things it had never done before. But he was also a hacker in the popular form of the word, meaning that he would get up to lots of mischief, doing things that he really shouldn't, on BBSs and beyond. He even had a hacker in demo scene handle, Trickster. Uh, I was also a, what I like to call as a, a filthy software pirate. And um, I didn't necessarily pirate software because it was fun to play the games. No, like any hacker worth his salt, Jim liked to see how other people were pushing the limits of the technology. I mean, the PC is certainly not a gaming machine, so anything decent in games uh, on the PC really impressed me. Uh, things like clever 3D programming or fast animation or really wonderful music or something along those lines. Jim spent most of his 20s working in various computer systems security-type roles, working on ways to keep people like his teenage self out. And on the side, he kept following the demo scene and the wares scene, and that's wares with a Z, which was the term software pirates used at the time. And around late 1996, early 97, he came upon a new term, just invented by a fellow called Peter Ringering. Abandonware. Software that had been abandoned by its copyright holder and therefore by some leap in logic. Fair game to share and distribute freely. I'll make another episode soon that explores this concept more deeply. But right now, you just need to know that it was intended as a sort of ethical piracy. Ringering used it to justify his new website's existence. The oldie computer site, a place on the web where you could obtain said abandonware. And he created a ring. Um, I'm not sure how we found each other. It might have been through IRC. It might have been through the old wares channel with a Z uh, at that time. And he had this idea to create a, a ring of all these sites that would offer up what, again, he was calling abandonware. Um, his grasp of the U.S. legal system was tenuous, um, but he believed that what he was doing was correct. And uh, I knew it was bogus, but I didn't really care because, as I said uh, before, I considered myself a software pirate. And, uh, you know, hopefully the statute of limitations has passed on that. But anyhow... Uh, what I wanted to share were the games that I felt were the most impressive. So I created a site. Uh, to help the ring, I also created a search engine, which is what made the, the ring of 10 or so sites actually usable. Because you know the, the content was constantly changing and uh, the search engine helped you know find what you were looking for. When I created my site, uh, it was actually, uh, unknowns to me, it was kind of a proto-Moby Games because... What I, again, my, my purpose in spreading the software was to try to point out uh, the best examples of gaming on my favorite platform, the PC, 
And I took great care to include things that were interesting about that software. Um, I would include a small blurb about what the game was about and why I felt it was special. If the cover art was good, I had a scan of the cover art, uh, always screenshots. Uh, and then to help people get it running, I had the specs for it. Jim called his website and search engine Trickster's Abandonware Archive. And it might have flown under the radar of copyright holders for a while, except that the Abandonware ring was really popular. And soon his search engine was getting listed as the top result on bigger search engines like AltaVista and Lycos for various popular old computer games. Like say you search for King's Quest or something. And that didn't go down well with the IDSA, the Interactive Digital Software Association, which is now known as the ESA. So the IDSA saw that and they flexed their legal muscles and sent me a cease and desist letter. And so I had to take down the search engine and my site. But it got me angry because I had spent so much time into a site that, again, I felt wasn't was much less enabling software piracy, but was much more trying to illustrate the risk, the rich and creative history of gaming on the PC. And so I got it in my head a year later to try to bring that experience back up, but minus the software infringement. And so that's what led to Moby Games. So as he just hinted at, for around a year after he closed his Abandonware archive, Jim didn't actually do anything. He just thought about it. He thought about all the things he wanted in a games history website. He wanted to see the connections between different games, he wanted to know who worked on a game he liked and what else they had contributed to, he wanted to know about all the different games released on PC in a given genre, about when games came out, about what games are like other games, about what games he'd never played looked like. And he wanted this information all in one well-organized website, one place to go for answers. One place that could be relied upon to give accurate, high-quality, fact-checked answers. So he looked to IMDb, the Internet Movie Database, for inspiration. You know, I wanted something very much like an IMDb landing page, but with a lot more interactive, you know, a lot more uh, of the ability to, to data mine than I think IMDb had. Like IMDb, at, the, at that time anyway, had just simple categories where you could go to trivia, you could go to goofs, you could go to whatever, and then you would see a static page. The only part of it that was interactive at the time were the credits. And uh, that definitely, you can see, had a major influence in Moby Games because Moby Games uh, puts a hell of a lot of focus on the people who made the game. I created, I created. I envisioned Moby Games because I wanted to go to that site and it didn't exist. And it drove me nuts that I couldn't look these things up. Eventually, Jim decided to just go ahead and try to build his idea. So he started writing out a plan for a relational database and an accompanying website that he'd write in Perl, a high-level programming language that's flexible and powerful, but also kind of ugly and messy. It was once likened to the duct tape that holds the internet together. And I, ha I wrote this all out in a text document 
And uh, I then had some questions about how to do, you know, a relational database stuff in Perl. And I called my friend Brian Hurt uh, because he was a Perl master. He'd been doing a lot of really advanced Perl stuff uh, as a contract programmer um, for financial institutions. And, uh, and we'd known each other before. He was uh, uh, one of my good friends in high school, and actually he was uh, best man at my wedding. So I called him and I had questions about how would I arrange this? Like, what, what would be the best way to do this? And he was, you know, being a good programmer, he asked, well, what are you trying to achieve? And everything I was thinking about spilled out in that conversation. I wish that I, I had a recording of it because it'd be interesting to see what I said then and what Movie Games is today. But I was very enthusiastically describing, I remember pacing around the room, actually, describing you know, and I don't know if I use the term like it would be like IMDb, but for games, but that was a way to help visualize what I was thinking of. Everything is clickable. Everything lets you continue to dive. And, uh, and that was about it. I actually didn't make too much progress on designing the database further because uh, I was extremely surprised to get a phone call from Brian about three days later saying, go here. And I was like, okay. And he emailed me a URL to a very specific IP address. And I went there and it was a basic mock-up of everything that I had said in that conversation. And I just about dropped the phone. And I was amazed. Um, he had populated it with like a dummy entry so we could like, you know, get a basic look of what it looked like. But the process passed for after that was was iterative. Like he and I would would call each other uh, every other night, and uh, he was living in Chicago at the time, and I was also living in Chicago. So we would uh, do a lot of this as um, pair programming with me over at his apartment. Although it wasn't very much pair programming, he did ninety nine point nine percent of the programming, and I was essentially just spitting out ideas and. Uh, you know, we would collaborate on the design and, and so forth. So it was, I really have to credit Brian. It was his, I, I don't, I would love to know <laughs> uh, why he did that. I don't know if he was trying to surprise me like as a gift or something like that, or maybe it just really interested him too. This was late 1998 and the web was taking off and uh, lots of sites were, uh, you know, having these quick meteoric rises and instant fortunes and things like that. And it's possible that that's another factor that appealed to us both, that we thought, you know, we can do this. And um, the focus wasn't at the time for historical information. I know that Moby Games is, is usually much more used for that today. It was to be a, a live, constantly updated modern site for games that were just coming out. And... Uh, I guess we thought, you know, this was worth pursuing because I, I guess we wanted to try to make it our living. Now, a quick note before we proceed. Jim helped me to get in touch with Brian, who said he'd be willing to answer some questions over email. But he never responded to my questions. So unfortunately, we don't get to hear Brian's perspective on these early years. Anyway, back to the story. As his concept became reality, Jim looked also to existing internet-based games databases for direction on what not to do. 
So when I interviewed him, he gave me one specific example. UVL, the Universal Video Game List. A still active database of tens of thousands of games that launched right around the time he and Brian were building Moby Games. And that at the time already had lots of games. But had yet to include much detail, if any at all, about said games. It really pissed me off. Because it was useless. It was, you would search for a game and you would get the year, the publisher, maybe the developer if you were lucky, and possibly a genre of what it was. You'd get tiny sparse amounts of information and it was no better than a software catalog listing. And that's it. And I was thinking to myself, that's completely useless. Like you should be able to uh, you should be able to click on a company and see everything that that company did. You should uh, have some more context uh, if you weren't aware of the kind of genre of, for example, say, a, you know, a LucasArts game, graphical point-and-click adventure or something. You should be able to click on that and see all the others that are in the, in the list. Okay, consider this example. Say you really liked Interplay's post-apocalyptic role-playing game Wasteland, which was later reimagined as Fallout. So Jim and Brian wanted their website to have clickable links on every bit of information about the game. So you click on the genre, you get a list of other games in that genre. You see the credits. Every person who worked on the game has their own credits page that you can then go to, where you'll see that designer Brian Fargo and artist Todd J. Kamaster also made a game called Dragon Wars, and then if you browse through Dragon Wars page, you can see the screenshots revealed that it's an excellent wasteland-like game with a fantasy setting and a Bard's Tale-style movement. And then that, of course, can lead you further down the rabbit hole, discovering some other games and other people who worked on things, always discovering more stuff that you might like just from browsing through the list of other games that each developer had worked on. That was envisioned from day one, and that, I believe, was implemented within the first six months of Moby Games. Jim and Brian opened Moby Games to the public in March 1999, announced just casually in the middle of a long Usenet thread discussing PC Gamer Magazine's 98% review score on Sid Meier's Alpha Centauri, which, as is typical of internet forums, soon descended into an argument about whether it's better than Civilization II, as per the one-point score difference, and whether professional game reviewers are all hacks. On day one, Moby Games had around 30 titles, all plucked from Jim and Brian's personal collections, starting with the X-Files game and Who Framed Roger Rabbit, both of which were chosen because they happened to be within arm's reach of the pair as they were testing the system, and then continuing through various titles that were new and old, all for the PC. The website had fields for user reviews and ratings, but not yet any way for users to create new entries in the database or otherwise generate their own content. And there were developer credits pages, a few of which pretty soon had fleshed out bios. The announcement seemed to pass by without any notice, but in the months that followed, Moby Games slowly built up an audience and built out its database of PC games, always prioritising quality of information over quantity of game entries. And by November, they had several hundred games in the database, with a web form set up for people to submit new games 
screenshots, trivia, ratings, credits, and reviews. And they were growing at a modest rate of around 100 to 200 new game entries a month. And what do you remember about uh, sort of A, uh, how you publicized it, and B, what that early reaction was from people who were seeing this? This is this is going to be one of the toughest questions to answer because unfortunately this is all part of a blur. The first two years of Moby Games was mostly a blur, which I know is not the answer you want to hear, but it's the truth. It's because everything was moving and changing so constantly that it's hard for me to remember very specific moments within the first two years. I remember that the Usenet post I put out almost immediately attracted two people. And, and, I, and not only do I remember their names, they're still involved with Moby Games, uh, I think. The first was someone who went by the handle Matt, M-A-T, and he was from Croatia. And the other is someone named uh, Tomer Gable from Israel, and if you'll if you step through Moby Games the database like sequentially chronologically, you'll see that for the first two or three months, the entries are Brian and myself, and then after about three months, that's when we implemented the ability for people to register user accounts and contribute information themselves. And Tomer and Matt have the earliest non-Brian, non-Jim entries in the system. So Tomer is an Israeli programmer who, like Jim, was active for years in the demo scene. He was a teenager at the time, and he's not exactly sure how he learned about Moby Games, but he believes it was from his brother. Here he is telling us a bit about his, his early impressions of the site. Right out the gate, I was fascinated by the notion of this like proto-IMDB, I guess you could say. If you think about it, Moby Games was useful right out the gate, right? We're talking like mid-1999, and it's a database. It's a publicly accessible database of computer games. There was something very just cool about it. It spoke to a very kind of deep place in me, I guess. I was already a demo senior at the time. I was already a programmer. I was already a gamer. So I was basically a huge young nerd, right? And uh, I think something about the, the way the information was laid out kind of made sense. Like the whole notion of an encyclopedia of computer games was kind of out there at the time, but it really resonated with me for whatever reason. I asked Tomo why he wanted to contribute to Moby Games. And he points to two things. I guess I would say Moby Games was like the first really useful online service that I'd encountered probably even before I encountered like really early stuff like Hotmail. And it was just really, really a cool experience to actually be able to contribute to it, see it grow in flight. Like you didn't have to mail in something to someone and hope that it gets, you know, added to the next version of the encyclopedia or, or whatever. You could just watch it grow right in front of your face. It was just a really, really cool thing to watch. Now, a few of the things Moby Games got right very, very early on, and I, I don't know that they necessarily get credit for that. I think this was Jim's idea. They added gamification really early on. Like the point system in Moby Games was just a wonderful kind of extrinsic motivator 
uh, for basically for lazy sods like me, right? But it was just a, a really powerful way of both acknowledging the contribution while not making too big of a fuss about it and kind of encouraging it in a very subtle way. I think this might very well be the earliest example of gamification on the internet that I can remember. And it's actually a really cool thing. And so Jim remembers that Tomer and Matt and the other early contributors were crucial to getting the site going. They uh, were very enthusiastic in the early days and I, they helped a lot, uh, both with direction and certainly with testing the user interface, which had to go through several iterations. You know, one of the differences, the major differences between Moby Games and something more generic like uh, Wikipedia is that in Wikipedia, anybody can contribute information. Obviously, it's the community itself self-polices the data, but anybody can create an account under any alias or whatever. For Moby Games, it's meant to be a little bit more curated. The information is supposed to be fact-checked. And this here was a big lesson for Tomo who says most of his early contributions were made not from careful checking of primary sources, but rather just from his memory. What happened was that Jim uh, very kind of gently and patiently explained to me why precision matters in this sort of thing. Like he had a very, very forward-thinking notion of, of archival quality right out the gate, which is really amazing. Like you... you Barely see it nowadays, and it's certainly unheard of in the early days of the internet. Now, being being young and, and kind of stupid at the time, I didn't really get it. Like I didn't, you know, I wasn't fully convinced. But I respected Jim enough, and Jim was extremely passionate and extremely patient that I just took him on faith and started being very careful about my submissions. So my submissions slowed down a little bit, but after a few months, I, I somewhat got competent at it. And I internalized that lesson. Precision is important, especially when you're dealing with information that may not be available anywhere else. Like if you're going to be putting that information out there, double check it. Be, you know, be a good citizen about it. Uh, an extra 20 seconds whenever you post something might actually prevent a lot of unnecessary future mistakes. And if you kind of care about history uh, the way the Moby Games founders and I do, then there you go. Uh, so that, you know, I, I really kind of owe Jim that lifelong lesson that I still uh, kind of take to heart today. Jim was learning lessons of his own from the way that people were using the Moby Games database contribution tools and uh, the way they were abusing those tools. So those early experiences let us know that we needed you know, a way to contact people like no anonymous submissions. And actually, actually, that was a lesson learned early on. We, when we had less checking in Moby games, people who were QA testers, like people who were very low on the totem pole when it came to creating the game, uh, would connect to Moby games and put themselves in with their, with titles like, you know, uh, senior designer. You know, and and so, and they could get away with it originally because some games would only list the full credits names only of people who had worked on the game, and so they're like, "Well, I'll just you know, put in whatever I want for myself." We'll continue with the story right after this short break. 
I make the Life and Times of video games all by myself, and it takes dozens of hours to do this every episode. Often 30 or 40 hours, sometimes more, for writing, editing and mixing, plus more for research and interviews and transcribing. And I enjoy doing all this, but it can be tough to make the time for it when it is just a side project. So if you like what I do here, or you just want to stop hearing these mid-episode interruptions, please consider subscribing to my Patreon at patreon.com slash lifeandtimesofvideogames. That's patreon.com slash lifeandtimesofvideogames. All one word. Alright, now let's get back to the show. When we left off, you had just heard about the early Moby Games community, and a little bit touching on how the games industry responded to the database, which was generally positive, but also included how some people in entry-level development roles abused the credit system to make themselves appear to be senior development staff. Now let's continue with site co-founder Jim Leonard's story about its first decade. Jim remembers only one instance of significant backlash in his time with Moby Games. Though there was another after he left that I'll touch on a little bit later. And this backlash that he encountered was actually present both at the outset and was an obvious one for a database of this sort. Why are you limited only to PC games? And our answer at the time was because PC was what we knew the most. And that way we could ensure that the data was being curated properly. If it was a completely foreign system, we, we couldn't be sure if what was being entered was accurate. And so I think on roughly our second year anniversary, we, we made in, in the necessary database changes, which was huge changes, of course, because you know, if we built the entire database that, assuming one platform. And now to suddenly make it platform agnostic was uh, nearly a complete redesign of, of our schema. To facilitate expansion to new platforms, the Moby Games team would ask anybody who requested that they add System X to then be the moderator for X. Because in order to retain high-quality data, they needed people who were familiar with each game console and computer and handheld to keep an eye on the submissions. Because internally, they weren't all that familiar with things that weren't the PC. And because also they only had a small internal team of four people. So usually people would say no to this, but occasionally somebody would say, sure. And so then they'd work with this person to get the new platform up and rolling. And it was through this collaboration with the community that by the end of 2003, Moby Games had grown to 34 platforms represented in its database. And then a year later, they had seven more. And by the end of 2005, they had 61 and so on up, more added every year. That said, expanding the scope to include these new platforms and scaling up the database into the thousands and tens of thousands of entries and beyond was a terrifying prospect for the core Moby Games team. A bigger database meant more complexity and greater cost to run and maintain the site which was frightening because they had very little indication as to how a project like this could actually make money. There was no Wikipedia yet when they started, nor any other correlate they could look to besides IMDb 
for how to monetize their website and keep the core team working on it full time. Now for a while there was actually enough money in advertising that that alone could keep them operational. But the value of ad clicks and impressions plummeted in the latter half of the decade. And this posed a problem. We were then thinking, well, how do we earn money? And we were going to try to license the data. We had spoken with Gama Sutra once. In fact, they actually flew out to Chicago and, and we had a, a very long dinner. And uh, we were trying to come up with like a Moby Games Pro, much like there's an IMDb Pro, where you can get additional information that is relevant to an industry. We were trying to create, like, for example, additional we were exploring whether or not there was a business in coming up with additional views of the data that would be um, financially interesting to recruiters for the game industry. For example, not only seeing who worked on a game, but how well that game did, how profitable that game was. And so if you were recruiting and you had your chance of, you know, your choice of programmer A, B, or C, well, over over that pro those programmers' careers, who made the most profit for their parent company? That guy. And so that was going to be Moby Games Pro. And unfortunately, uh, we could never find a, a customer <laughs> for this. Gama Sutra was going to be probably the most appropriate pairing of demand and supply. But uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, again, there's only so much money in game developer magazine and GDC and so forth. So it just never came together. Hmm. That's actually for me, probably the biggest thing that Moby games is missing. Uh, it's this information about gross revenue of a game, which is a really handy thing on IMDb. You can go on there and look and see, okay, the, this movie made $20 million. And then from that, uh, you might also be able to see that the budget was one million, and oh, they they did well out of that, and that's interesting as a as a just consumer, but of course as a professional, that's huge. Absolutely, and it's not developed in Moby Games because there's no motivation to do it. The community of fans might find it interesting, but they'd rather work on other stuff. And you know, when we no longer had a financial motivation for it. You know, we had customers for that service. We did not complete that service. And there was also going to be some question actually of where to obtain that data. Which gets into a totally different problem in the games industry with the secrecy of the business and the near complete absence of publicly available data and revenue figures and budgets of most commercial games, at least beyond what can be estimated from earnings calls and tools like Steam Spy. Now that deserves its own discussion, so let's just continue with the story. So the short version is that after 10 years, Moby Games needed a buyer, and the team had one key condition for sale. The one requirement was that it had to be gaming-oriented, and the, and the new owners would have to be passionate about games. And that way we felt they would continue to maintain the site and, and the, uh, the vision you know, for, the, for the project. The first offer that was semi-appealing came from game rental service Gamefly in 2010, and so it's the one they took. By the close of the year, Moby Games had over 56,000 games listed across 95 platforms, 
and no notable difference in look or operating style from the year before. In fact, the only indication they'd been sold at all was a new logo that appeared at the bottom of the site over Christmas. Now, I'm not going to get into detail on the whole saga of the second 10 years of Moby Games. It wouldn't be right to without input from someone who was on the inside during that time. But I will touch on the big notes. So Jim had by this point already stepped back from day-to-day operations. He'd had a fight with the community of their volunteer contributors a few years earlier over whether role-playing games should be a top-level genre or they should not. So he believed they fall under the umbrella of adventure, but he didn't adequately communicate his views on why, and soon he realised that he had to step back from the argument in order to keep the community together, because apparently people feel very passionately about whether role-playing games are a genre unto themselves, or a kind of adventure game. And so then, when they sold to Gamefly, he checked out completely. Meanwhile, the Moby Games community didn't take too kindly to news of the sale when, eventually, it came out. It had never been a secret that the data they contributed was owned by Moby Games. But some members still took offence to the fact that the database they'd worked so hard to improve was now a property of a big media and technology company. They felt betrayed, used, at the lack of community consultation pre-sale, as well as a lack of notification post-sale, and that sacred trusts they'd worked so hard to forge between Moby Games community and management had been shaken, if not destroyed. Many contributors left the site at that point, but enough of them remained to keep the site growing, and keep improving the database. Now rival gamers' databases, they saw the opportunity here. They'd already made a play for leadership in the area before the Gamefly sale, the highest profile of which was Giant Bomb. But all of them either had or would soon learn that there was scant money in becoming the IMDB of video games. And so nearly all of them pivoted to something else or faded away into the background. Moby Games felt increasingly dated and neglected, with a design and user interface that had barely shifted since the site's early years, but it remained the de facto king of the space, just on merit of the fact that nobody else seemed to be able to do a better job. Then in September 2013, Gamefly finally pushed out a redesign, three years after they'd bought it. The community hated it. They labelled this redesign bland, generic, boring, slow, and worst of all, broken. Many features had stopped working, while much of the detailed information that had made Moby Games the king of the space was concealed by needless vertical scrolling or additional menus that you had to click through. This time people weren't going to wait around to see how things play out. This time the community just walked out, en masse, and updates to the database came close to a standstill. At a loss for what to do, Gamefly went looking for a way out. They didn't want to kill Moby Games, but they didn't want to own it either. 
So they asked Simon Carlos for help. He runs the Game Discover Co. agency and newsletter now, but at the time he was Gama Sutra publisher, Independent Games Festival chair, and Game Developers Conference overseer. And he's a fan of the show, hi. But uh, unfortunately he wasn't available for an interview. So anyway, Gamefly contacted Simon, who then connected them to a guy called Jeremiah Lakefield, who also goes by the name Reed. Then Jeremiah owned a little company, a little web company called Blue Flame Labs. He'd previously built the community-focused site VG Box Art, and he was interested in taking over Moby Games. So he made a deal with some investment from Simon and took on the unenviable task of winning back the community and maintaining that sprawling ancient Perl code base that Brian had first built over a decade ago, and that required Herculean efforts to update to modern standards. Just about his first act as owner was to very quickly roll back to the old design and start fixing all the major outstanding bugs. And then he did something Moby Games hadn't done in years. He listened to the community. He acted on their feedback. And slowly momentum built up again as they embarked on community projects to fill out neglected areas of the database. And so then a two-way engagement between community and management seemed to be restoring much of this broken trust. Moby Games was back. But even with support from community donations, Jeremiah appears to have learnt the same lessons as those who came before him. Moby Games may be a critical resource, but it doesn't really make any money. And so, as Jim Leonard explains, it is also locked into a code base that is anything but flexible. The the biggest problem Moby Games has these days, apart from, I would say, funding, and that's not a slam against the current owner, it's just simply the reality of the total audience size for a gaming history website. The biggest problem Moby Games has today is uh, extensibility. There are a lot of things that could be added to Moby Games, but it is not written in a language that anyone motivated to code for it would want to work in. So that's a shame. Uh, I think that's Moby Games' biggest challenge moving forward. I mean, it can always run. You can put in a container or a VM or something and, and, and freeze it in, in time and it will continue to run and, and accept new input and, and, and whatever, but it, its features will not grow unless somehow its entire front end can be completely rewritten in some other technology while keeping the database the same. And I have no idea how to solve that problem. Uh, it's my hope eventually. I mean, I haven't been closely associated with Moby Games in, in over a decade, but it is my hope for the future that some gaming history foundation with funds uh, would, would accept it as, uh, as a project, that they, w- they would become the stewards of it. Which doesn't look too likely, given that all of the existing nonprofit games history organizations lack either the funding or the manpower to take over. And so, again, the future of Moby Games looks uncertain. Again, a fear hangs loosely over its long-term health. 
the data is very likely safe. It's backed up and protected for posterity, and the, the current owner cares a lot about it. But what of the website and the community that is arguably its true value? But they are the ones always correcting it, expanding it, and tweaking it to be more comprehensive, more accurate, and more diverse of a reflection of the, the facts of the industry's history. What happens to them if Moby Games can't get the funding it needs? But, well, if we set aside these concerns and speculations about its future, and instead concentrate on its legacy, its utility, beyond the massive footnotes on Wikipedia pages, what can we say? For Jim Leonard, that is a hard question to answer. I don't actually know how relevant Moby Games is anymore. Um, because, this is going to get very cynical, uh, I've come to the realization that the only people who care about your history is your generation. And a, a former colleague of mine used to say that you should try to save everything because you have no idea what will be historically relevant in the future. And I think that's the glass half full. Unfortunately, I seem to be in the glass half empty uh, situation where I think that our history persists for one generation, roughly. And then after that, there's no audience for it anymore. So I can't envision a legacy for Moby Games because I can't really envision a legacy for almost anything. Sorry, this is the most depressing historian you'll ever talk to, and I do apologize, but it is how I feel. I've backed up. I still greatly love the history. I, you know, I, I'm still interested in the history, but I don't operate. It's no longer a, a driving mission for me. For many of those who do still have the history of games as a driving mission, or even just people who care about preserving this medium as it develops, Moby Games is very much relevant and important. Toma tells me he doesn't contribute much anymore, but he supports the site on Patreon, and it is still the place he goes when he's trying to help someone remember or identify an old game they loved. But I think to really understand the legacy and influence of Moby Games, I think you have to look beyond people like Jim and Toma. You have to look at the games industry itself, and the people who work in and around it. And so as I was working on this episode, I asked several people to send me their thoughts on why the site matters to them. Four of them did exactly that, namely John Shapaniak, author of Japansoft, and the untold history of Japanese game developers. Quint Basinger from Lazy Game Reviews, the pixel artist and retro gaming journalist Matei Yan, and id Software co-founder John Romero. I'm going to let them have the last word here. Because even though Moby Games has always been privately owned, it has also always been ours. The people of the games industry. It is the collective record of the games we made and played. And the ones we didn't, and the ones we might, and the ones we probably never will. 
Hi, this is John Romero, and I have been a devoted Moby Games user for years. I mean, since uh, Jim Leonard started Moby Games, uh, he contacted me when he started it. And, um, you know, I was totally behind it because there was nowhere, uh, especially back then, there was nowhere that is the definitive, um, like, IMDb of games and who made them and, you know, all the information about them, the screenshots and all that stuff. So I was really behind that project. Hello, this is Matei Jan, editor of Retronator, a blog about pixel art. Moby Games has been invaluable to the pixel art community and me as a journalist in the space of retro gaming. Greetings, Clint here from LGR, and yeah, on the topic of MobyGames.com, yeah, it would be a supreme understatement to say that it would be difficult to do my job if it weren't for the site's existence over the years. Although I believe I first stumbled across the site by browsing through other sites like Home of the Underdogs, and uh, yeah, just going through that whole early abandonware scene, tracking down all sorts of interesting games from my childhood that I half remembered or things that I had never seen, and then being referred to Moby Games over and over and over, and then that sent me down an even deeper rabbit hole of just tracking down all kinds of stuff and then going on eBay, and that just got me into making my own backups of the software, but also scanning everything. My name is John Szczepaniak. I love Moby Games for multiple reasons, for work and recreation. Moby Games is an invaluable tool for research. In fact, I think it's one of the most important websites about games in the history of the entire internet. I regard Moby Games as more valuable than YouTube and Wikipedia because it deals mainly with verifiable facts and hard data. Everything from looking up which versions of which games exist for a specific system or specific subset of graphics or sound hardware or something, to being able to look up different developers and seeing which other things they collaborated on quite easily due to the way that the site handles cross-referencing different games and companies and collaborators and all that kind of stuff. It's just fantastic for that. Moby Games is a great reference site for pixel artists. It's very easy to go find the screenshots of the games you are researching, look at different art styles, see how the same game was done on different systems. As a journalist, any research I'm doing about old games, Moby Games is always going to be my first stop to get information and see how something looked like. The credits section is also invaluable to track down which artists worked on which games. Back then and over the years, you know, for me, it's like if there's a new person trying to get in the company um, to get interviewed, I always look them up on Moby to see if they are real, like if, if they exist. It's like, what have you done? Um, if your name's not on Moby, you're really new. But if you are on Moby, um, you know, it's a big deal because that's the definitive location of people's work in the video game is gone. If somebody I'm interviewing mentions a game, I can get an instant overview of it. Screens, dates of release, systems it came out on, developers, publishers, all of the credits. If somebody mentions the name of a colleague, I can instantly check their entire career. I can cross-reference other projects that they've been involved in. For example, I was researching the Akira game on Amiga and I found the lead programmer by tracking down his brother. 
who was at another company. But it is thanks to Moby Games that I was able to find these contacts in order to get hold of the people that I need to. It's not an exaggeration to say that for a lot of games journalists, Moby Games has directly shaped their work and careers. And that's just looking at it from a work perspective. Sometimes if I'm playing a game that I enjoy, I'll go to Moby Games and I will look up those who were involved in that game in order to find other games that they've worked on in the hope of finding a game of similar quality. And this is the source of Moby Games' value. The near-infinite web of cross-referencing hyperlinks fulfilling the vision of Sir Tim Berners-Lee and his intentions for the World Wide Web when he created it. I became a member, a contributor of the site, and started adding a lot of my own scans over the years, and still do. I don't know seriously what in the world I would do for my current work if it weren't there all of a sudden. The site organically growing like neurons in the human brain, each new entry strengthening the whole. Moby Games is games, and it shows how interlinked everything is with each other. Pretty much any time I end up on Wikipedia as I search for some game, I will always then click through and go to Moby Games to find out more information and see the screenshots. Moby Games is just an invaluable resource. I'm glad that, um, that it's still around and that it's still adding games every single day. It's great to have different experts for different systems. Uh, I think that's a really, that was a really smart move. I'm, I'm glad it's still there and it needs to keep on going. The Life and Times of Video Games is created entirely by me, Richard Moss. And as it's a one-man operation, you'd be helping me tremendously just by sharing the show and the episodes you enjoy with other people. I had not planned for this five-month hiatus between the last regular episode and this one, but I am determined not to keep you waiting particularly long for the next one. I'm looking at publishing two more episodes this year. Uh, exactly when, I have no idea. But before the end of the year, two more episodes. And then there'll be some bigger changes after that in how and when I produce this thing. So in the meantime, if you would like to support what I do here, you can, as I said before, tell other people about it. You can also buy my books. Shareware Heroes is in production now and can be pre-ordered, while the Secret History of Mac Gaming Expanded Edition is coming out with Bitmap Books in October. And you can support the documentary I'm co-producing with fellow historian slash journalist David L. Craddock about first-person shooters at fpsdoc.com. And you can donate to me directly, if you prefer, via PayPal on paypal.me slash mossrc or subscribe to my Patreon at patreon.com slash lifeandtimesofvideogames. And if there's some other way to support me, hey, just reach out. I would be happy to uh, hear your ideas. So this show has only lasted up until now because of the support and encouragement of my patrons, and I want to give a special shout out and thank you again to my wonderful producer level backers, Kerry Clanton, Wade Tregascus, Seth Robinson, Rob Eberhard, Simon Moss, Scott Grant, Vivek Mohan, and Joel Weber. If you would like to join them, and get some bonus content and monthly status updates and my eternal thanks amongst other things 
That link again is patreon.com slash life and times of video games. And as always, you can find all this information and more at my website, lifeandtimes.games. Until next time, my name is Richard Moss, and this was the Life and Times of Video Games. Thanks for listening. I'll see you.